You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. It's good to be together this morning. We're going through the book of Acts. We're in Acts 17 this morning back in January. Uh, we started in chapter 1, verse 1. We're just working our way through this important book of the Bible. That was kind of awesome. Okay, so I wasn't sure what was happening. <laughs> I'm going to pray, <laughs> then we'll jump in. Before I jump in, uh, this is our, since 16 years ago, this is our 16th anniversary as a church. We started at Godby High School. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. Uh, to my good friend, Scott Simmons, who started the church with me, along with his wife, Jen, my wife, Chrissy, and our entire church family, happy anniversary. It's awesome to be here. God's done an awesome work, hasn't he, in Tallahassee. We give him all the glory, all the credit, and we're asking for more of it, like generations to come. Uh, so let's, let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Our Father, we are so thankful for that reality. That 16 years ago, you allowed us in your grace to start a church. So I'm thankful for those first people who walked in the door. Uh, I thank you for Scott. I thank you for Jen Simmons, who uh, just quietly, faithfully serve this church to this day as city group leaders, uh, just so involved in everything. A lot of folks don't even know who they are, but the ones that are in their group know them well. I just thank you for how you use them. I know, humanly speaking, we don't have a church without them. So I just thank you for them. Just publicly, I just just thank you for them and to show gratitude to you for their role in the, this church. And also for those that now live all across the country, who people in this room don't even know their names, uh, who laid it all down and gave faithfully and prayed and served and showed up when we first started a church with 20 people, then 50, then 100, and now what you allow us to see today. We ask for generations of city church in this city. This church is here long after we're all gone, being faithful and preaching the gospel. If that be true today, we depend on you for that. Let it be true tomorrow. Let it be true in the future. We pray for all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today. We know we're not the only ones doing this. We're only 16 years old. Uh, we just got our driver's license. Uh, we know there's churches who have been meeting long before us. So we ask you to bless all the churches in our city today as we proclaim the gospel. I ask you to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city. Let the good news of your love for us go forward. I ask me those in our church who are sick, who are hurting, who maybe are depressed, who are lonely, who have anxiety, who have marital issues. Lord, I bring all those things up because you are the ultimate grand healer of all things. We're thankful for the common grace you give us. And Lord, I ask that we will serve each other, support each other, be there for each other, ultimately because we know that you are always there for us. Lord, speak through me today. Help us understand the book of Acts, understand the scriptures, and let us point us to the one who loved us first. And his name is Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen. So Alistair Begg, who's a pastor, he has a Scottish accent, which makes him much more spiritual uh, when he preaches. I don't know about you, but I just love that kind of stuff. He wrote this, that Christians are increasingly going to have to choose between obedience and comfort. Now, that sounds really easy to say in our kind of comfortable lifestyle here in Tallahassee, where you can be a Christian and do all the things and oftentimes not mean very much and not affect very much. But he's saying it's going to get to the point where we're going to have to choose obedience to God, obedience to the scriptures, belief in Christ being all his, sold out to his mission and his name and his glory, or comfort. Why does he say that? Because it's bad to be comfortable? No, he's not shaming us. He's saying this, the next decades will not bring apathy to the gospel. It won't bring apathy to the faith. It's going to bring antagonism which antagonism, that middle is not going to work anymore. That kind of, I'm in the middle, my kind of muddled faith. I like Jesus, but not too much. Like, I believe in God, I'm a Christian. And by that, you just mean you're not an atheist, you're not Jewish, you're not Muslim, you're not a Buddhist. Like, it doesn't mean very much, kind of that old the song, the Jelly Roll song, I only talk to God when I need a favor. Like, that, that kind of faith, that kind of idea, I can be that way very often. It's not going to work anymore. I'm really thankful that God's patient with us in the process of us understanding that and working through it. 
But it's easy to say it's not going to work anymore. But you know why it's not going to work anymore? It was never designed to be that in the first place. There's never a kind of sort of following Jesus. We just become so Americanized in our faith and secularized in our faith that it's easy to kind of only talk to God when I need a favor. Have a very compartmentalized sort of kind of Jesus, but not too much. Enough of Jesus to be identified with, but not so much where it personally inconveniences us at all. So what happened in the last part of Acts chapter 17, this is a quick little recap, is the gospel is going on the second missionary journey, city to city. Paul and Silas and other Christians are taking the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to all their contexts of the world, and they go to Thessalonica. And what happens there is only a few people become Christians, the rest riot. They go bananas, they go crazy. Persecution breaks out. They drag Christians out of their home to arrest them and beat them and prosecute them, carry them out in the streets to make an example out of them. It's not going well. But God's sovereign, and it's not cliche to say he is in control. And we're seeing people actually come to faith in Christ. Very few, but the gospel continues to go forward. So they finally, as they arrest Paul, they let him go. And the believers go, we got to get him out of here really quick before they change their mind. So we're going to see a contrast in the two groups. The Jews in Thessalonica, and now people are going to be introduced to called the Bereans, where we'll start to see in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters, the Christians, part of the church, sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Get out of here before they change their mind. They wanted to kill us. They relented. Let's get to the next city. Berea is now where they are. Upon arrival, they went to the synagogue of the Jews, par for the course. Every time they go to the synagogue first, they're actually preaching the gospel to religious people. Mere belief in God is not enough. You must believe in the name of Jesus Christ. He is the one who shed our blood, who shed his blood, so that we would have to shed ours, ultimately in terms of spiritual death. To believe in God is to believe in Jesus. Mere theism is not enough. The people here were of, noble, were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica, so we see a strong contrast here. They were a more noble character. Why? Because they didn't riot. They didn't just immediately respond in outrage. They received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Notice it doesn't say they automatically became Christians. It doesn't say they were brainwashed. It doesn't say they only believed because their grandmother and their parents told them to. That it wasn't just a tradition, just kind of what you do because you live in Berea and it's just kind of going about the religious Joneses of the day. They heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what he came to do for sinners, that he is the mediator between God and man, and they went, huh, interesting. They had heard about the persecution, you can be sure of that, Thessalonica is not that far away. So they're going, this is the message that's risking these people's lives. But it says they receive the word, as in Paul's teachings from the scriptures, with eagerness. They want to hear more of this. This is interesting. This is captivating me. And what did they do as a result? They examined the scriptures daily. They invested in trying to figure this out. Why? To see for themselves a faith of their own if these things were true, if they were so. My FCA leader used to always say to us when I was at Leon, don't believe these things just because I tell you to. Search the scriptures for yourself. Look it up yourself. Yes, you can trust me as a friend and as a mentor, but don't take it as face value. This is life and death kind of stuff. Not murky middle, oh, let's kind of believe a little bit. If Jesus really is alive and everything changes, see it for yourself. So some good news, consequently, many of them believe. That was their conclusion. He really is the one, including a number of the prominent Greek women as well as men. So high society people, low society, for lack of a better word, people, Greeks, Jews, people are believing the good news of the gospel in Berea. It's getting a lot better than it was in Thessalonica. 
But as usual, that word but's there, verse 13. When the Jews from Thessalonica found out, man, they're just like mob city. They were like Twitter mob before it was a thing. That the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, the same word we tried to ban in our city. They came there too. They come to town. They're agitating. They're upsetting the crowds. And the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away. We've got to get you out of here because you have more gospel to preach in other cities. Away to the coast. He'll get to Athens. But Silas and Timothy stayed on there. They stayed behind because the Bereans needed to be discipled. They needed to hear about Jesus. More people needed to come to faith. They were going to invest their lives there to be able to do that. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, which will be in next week, which is a fascinating part of the scriptures when he's in Athens talking there. And after receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, then they departed. Hey, I need you to come join me. We're trying to get things going in Athens. It's getting a little interesting here. You know, it's Silas, Timothy, do your work there, and then get on over here. But what we're going to talk about today is the Bereans. Upon hearing about Christ, they searched the scriptures. Now, what scriptures would those have been? It would have been the Old Testament. That would have been always available. Yet yeah, the New Testament was still being written, the story of Christ, the story of church. But the Old Testament is actually sufficient to point us to Jesus. We need the New Testament to kind of round it all off and land the plane and fully understand. But the Old Testament, in terms of how Paul's preaching the gospel, that Jesus is the long-awaited, long-predicted for generations Messiah, and he actually has come, and that he gave his life for you, that he died for your sins, that he rose from the grave, and he's going to come again one day and make all things new and judge the living and the dead. This is what they're hearing. But it's all from the Old Testament. It's easy for me to see the Old Testament as a bunch of words I can't pronounce, a lot of strange stories, a lot of cities never heard of, a lot of wars, some stories that I heard as a kid, David and Goliath, Noah and the Ark, Jonah and the Big Fish, those kind of things, but it's so much more than that. It's actually the scriptures that ultimately point us to the good news of the gospel, that help us to know who Jesus is and receive Christmas, that he actually has come with confidence. Without the Old Testament, Christmas makes no sense. He has come. He is born in Bethlehem. They're all like, who? The Savior, like Christ the Lord. Why does it matter? Big deal. There's babies born in Bethlehem all the time. What's the big deal? Well, they had been told for generations and generations that a Messiah would come who would deliver God's people once and for all from their sins and reconcile them to himself. And he now has come. It's the Old Testament that helps us understand. Robert Smith, professor at Beeson Divinity School, says this. For every New Testament doctrine, like truth that we hold and believe, there's an Old Testament picture, something that pointed us there. Like Jesus is our substitute. He's the one who died in our place. The picture in the Old Testament is the lamb being sacrificed, his blood being shed by the priest in our place. We don't need a priest anymore. We don't need a lamb. Why? Because the ultimate lamb of God, Jesus Christ, he was our substitute. New Testament doctrine, which is called substitutionary atonement, points to an Old Testament picture, the priest and the lamb, presenting in our place. I've heard it said before, it's been said forever, I'm not exactly sure, I think it's Warfield who first said this, way back at Princeton Seminary uh, 100 years ago, that the Old Testament is a finely furnished room with dim lights. Think of a really nice, perfectly furnished room. I mean, it looks wonderful, it's everywhere, it's full. There's so many things in it. Couch, chair, TV, it's a furnished room, but really dim lights. When you walk in, you're kind of still, you know, sort of feeling around. You can't see everything. You can't enjoy it all. But then Jesus is the one who lights up the room. So the Old Testament is the room with a lot of furniture in it, a lot of story, but it's dim. Jesus, the light of the world, helps us see the entire story and make sense of it all, that it ultimately is about him, that he is the fulfillment 
You know why that matters for us and is relevant right now? It means that God keeps his promises. That all of his promises, the scriptures tell us, are answered yes in Jesus Christ. It's good news for all of us to know the entire Bible is not random, isolated stories. It's one story ultimately pointing us to redemption found in Jesus Christ. Let's be Old Testament people and New Testament people. But also these Bereans didn't have individual Bibles. They didn't have the Bible app on their phone. Like, how lucky are we today we had the Bible on our phone? Like, I listen to the Bible driving in the morning. That's kind of, I've been trying that for a while. Like, I still read the Bible, but I listen to it in the car. It's called the Dwell app. There's a lady named Rosie, has a British accent, and reads it to me. I feel like I'm, like, extra spiritual because of that. Like, it's awesome. Uh, and so I had that available to me. I can go to Rosie on my Dwell app, and she's going to read me the Bible in a British accent. I'm, like, trying to find fish and chips by the time it's over and loving Jesus more kind of stuff, right? We have so much available to us. They didn't have that then. They didn't have individual copies. They didn't have this. What happened oftentimes was there were simply scrolls, and they were limited, who had been passed down from the prophets through generations, and they were meant to be heard and examined and read corporately. The Bible was never first designed to be about me and God time. On your back porch with your latte, taking a picture, you know, reading a few verses and then moving on. That's still a good thing to do, and we should have that personal individual time. That wasn't the first and ultimate point, and still isn't today. That reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible were meant to be more communal acts, like whole church, like together, believers together acts more than private acts. It doesn't mean we still don't have the private part of individual Bible reading. It's really important, but even bigger than that was the corporate time together. That's why the scriptures say in the book of Hebrews, don't neglect meeting together. As in this matters, and church matters, and Bible studies matter, and group texts about the Bible matter, you know, and, and city groups, and Bible studies, all those things matter because we're searching the scriptures together. So the Bereans would hear the reading of the scroll, the Old Testament, then they, would get to, they wouldn't go off on their own in different corners of the room by themselves. They would come together and say, let's understand this. Explain this to me. Show this to me. Let's read this together. In community, not alone, was the first way the Bible was meant to be read. And that hasn't changed. This still matters. Groups still matter. Bible studies still matter. Sharing what you've read via a group text. I know we have some of those in our student ministry. There's group texts about quiet times they had, reading the Bible. Those things still matter so much. But corporate is the way that God has given us. So don't neglect this. We hear the scriptures, we receive the scriptures, then we're to talk about the scriptures together. So part of searching the Bible today, we want to be Bereans, right? Search the Bible today is to combat the original question of the enemy of the devil. Back in the Garden of Eden, when they were first tempted to sin, Adam and Eve, and eat the fruit from the tree that God forbid, and God gave them freedom to do anything else. Enjoy all this garden, enjoy me, enjoy every fruit on every tree. This is your domain, I've given it to you. There's one thing I want you to do. Eat fruit from that tree. So Adam and Eve go, well, these other fruits look really nice. I'm sure they taste good too, but ooh, God's holding out on us. This seems a little bit better over here. I think there might be more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. I might got to go around God for all I'm looking for in my life rather than write to him. So what did they do? They sinned. They took the fruit from that tree. Rather than enjoying all the good gifts God had already gave them, they said, God, no thanks. I don't want what you have for me. I want what I have for me, which is the issue with all of us when it comes to sin. But what happened before that? When they were being tempted, Eve told the serpent, told the devil, God told us not to eat from that tree. And what did the devil say back? Did God really say that? 
Like, are you sure that's exact? Yeah, he said that, but he didn't really actually mean that. Going to the scriptures and searching them helps us answer the question, did God really say this? Because the devil always wants us to question, distort, twist, take out of context the word that God has given us in the Bible. It's like if you're a parent in the room, your kid comes to you and they're like, hey, can I um, you know, stay up a little bit, you know, an hour later tonight, I know it's a school night, but I want to finish a movie. Um, can I have you know, some candy and some cookies before dinner? And can, can I just kind of do all that? And you're like, no, that's not a good idea. Let's eat dinner first. Maybe you can have a little bit of a dessert later. Also, school tomorrow. You probably need to get some sleep. You've been tired lately. You know, it's like, well, well, uh, well, mom said I could. And it's like, really? Mom said that? Mom said you could go to bed an hour later than normal and eat cookies and watch a movie late on a school night? Yep. That's what mom said. Okay, great. I'm going to ask her. No, 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 no. Right? No, no, no. I didn't mean it that way. Always trying to get us to go, wait. Is that really what was said? Is that really what was said? But also for us, it's important to ask the question, what did God actually really say? And go to the source. In our house, if it's, well, dad said we could stay up late and eat candy, it's probably true. But, <laughs> but how often, how often does God want, or does the devil want to distort the words of God? and make us question what it is that God actually said. So you can read an Instagram post or a TikTok video and hear somebody saying spiritual things and rather than going, oh yes, that sounds great, I'm in on that. It's all about me, the Bible is all about me. God just wants me to be happy. If I leave my wife, whatever I wanna do, God just wants me to be happy in the moment. It says it right here. That TikTok person said it and they quoted a Bible verse. Instead we go, hmm, really say that in its proper context and we might call and ask a friend who we trust who's a believer to help us think through it and search through it did God really say is a tactic of the devil but as Christians we need to make sure we're clear and we're able to say here is actually what God said we need to know the source of what we believe and what we do not believe not just believe, but do not believe. And what God has given us for that is what the Bereans are searching through to make their conclusion, and that is the scriptures. Satan tried to distort scripture when he tempted Jesus. Jesus was tempted, but he's without sin. We can relate to him because he went through temptation. But thankfully, unlike us who failed, he was successful as God and did not sin. So he lived a perfect life we couldn't live and died a death that we deserved. How great is our God? How good is the gospel? But when Satan is tempting him, he goes, hey, I'm gonna quote you some scripture to show you that God's cool with this, and Jesus is like, hey man, in Matthew 4, he goes, it is written, quotes the Bible in its proper context. He goes, okay, I got another one for you. In the Bible, it says this and that, and Jesus goes in Matthew 4, three verses later, verse seven, again, it's written. I'm gonna quote the Bible in its proper context. Matthew chapter four, verse 10, Satan again goes, hey, here it is, don't you want all these, Satan goes, or Jesus said, no, no, no. Here's what the Bible actually says, and here's because I have a word from God, I know there's not more to be gained by disobeying God than there is to be gained by obeying him. I want to please my heavenly father rather than please you. When Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he'd begin by saying, have you not read? And they're very Jewish, very educated, very theological, and the answer would have been, oh yeah, we have read. That's the source, that's the authority, not tradition, even though tradition's a good thing. Scripture is the authority. Feelings are not the authority. Even though feelings matter, and we should pay attention to them, but they aren't authority. We pay attention to feelings. We don't let feelings rule over us. 
God's word is the authority. So the Bereans here, they're aware of the persecution. They heard about Thessalonica, and now they're coming to the town because they're hearing the gospels going forward. So the Bereans have to search the scriptures because here's a question they have to answer. Is this worth it or not? Is it? I'm hearing Paul. I'm hearing Silas. We're searching the scriptures to see if this is legit, but not just legit. If this is worth our lives, maybe literally. And the answer, if it's worth it or not, is going to be, is he the one or not? Is he the Messiah or is he not? You can't sort of kind of be the Messiah. But either Christmas is worth celebrating or it's not. Either Jesus is the one the Old Testament pointed to or he's not. Either Jesus died on this cross for our sins and rose again or he didn't. You see how there's no room for the middle? It's not about being enlightened. There's no nuance when it comes to who Jesus is. There's nuance for a lot of things, and we should probably be more sensitive towards it. There's no nuance when it comes to who Jesus is. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But there's one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus. If it's not true, then what are we doing? That's what the Bereans wanted to know. So we're being told the one that had been promised is he. Well, well, why? But he died. Why, why did he die? The Messiahs don't die. Well, let me take you through this, Bereans, and show you the story of blood and sacrifice and death for generations that God would provide to cover our sins for a little while. This one, because he rose from the grave and is the perfect spotless lamb of God, guess what? Your sins aren't just covered for a little while. They're forgiven forever. Forever. And he rose from the dead, yes, and he predicted that he would. Let's see this over and over again. Is he the one? This is John chapter 6. Jesus replied, the words of Christ here, this is the work of God. As in this is God's will, this is what God's doing. Do you believe in the one he has sent? Like that's God's will for you. To reject the one he sent is to reject God. And that's not closed-minded. Uh, that's not being closed-fisted. That's actually just quoting the Bible. To say you believe in God but don't believe in Jesus is to reject the God of the Bible. Hear me clearly, you must receive the Son. He really is the one he claimed to be. He really is worth our lives. And the Bereans are going, we need to make sure. Is he worth us getting stoned by rocks? You gotta say stoned by rocks nowadays. You say stone, they think you're, you know, a Bonnaroo or something. Is he worth it? Is he worth us being socially ostracized? Is he worth our calendars? Is he worth our resources? Like, like is, he worth, is he worth it? Is he worth us enduring during this tough spot in our marriage? Like, like is he? Is he worth it? And they're just not taking it for face value because the preacher said so. Or because grandma said so. You know, thank God grandma said so. They're searching the scriptures to see. My friend Tony said this recently. He said, for these people here, who are searching the scriptures. The end of Genesis, the great hero of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, Joseph, a big character in Genesis, like the whole last third of the book's dedicated to him. You know what happens at the very end of Genesis we see? Joseph dies. He dies. He goes into a tomb, and he's laid to rest, just like all of us will one day. Deuteronomy, a large Old Testament book they had been very familiar with. You know what happens at the end of Deuteronomy? The great hero of the Jewish people, Moses, 
The one who stood eye to eye with Pharaoh and said, let my people go. The one from the burning bush who parted the Red Sea. Like that Moses who there's like movies made about him, Charlton Heston. Prince of Egypt when I was a kid. Like that Moses, like big deal Ten Commandments Moses. You know what happens at the end of Deuteronomy? Moses is dead. He dies. Laid into a tomb, buried somewhere. They tell us where he is in the scriptures. He dies. His successor, Joshua, the hand-picked person to take God's people into the promised land that God had guaranteed for them and prepared for them as an inheritance. That Joshua, the battle of Jericho, like big deal, Joshua. You know what happens at the end of the book of Joshua? He's dead. Read it for yourself. End of Genesis, Joseph's dead. End of Deuteronomy, it says, and Moses died. End of Joshua, and Joshua died. You know what happens at the end of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Jesus rises from the grave, and he is alive. Tell me, is he worth our lives? Is he? What a swing. What a change. And they're going, whoa. We love Moses. He, I mean, granted, Moses is alive. He's in heaven, but physically, he is dead. Yeah. Joseph, dead. Joshua, man, he was like the best warrior of all of them. He's dead. Tell me more about this Jesus. Because it's a different story now. Is he worth it? It's going to depend on the answer to one question. Is he really the one? So here they are searching the scriptures, and it's still important for us today to take this exact same approach. You might say, well, you're not a Bible scholar. I'm not a Bible scholar. You don't have to be. The Bible was written to people who had the Holy Spirit who can read and understand. Ask for help, but to start reading it and, under, and trying to work through it and text somebody you trust who loves Jesus, who knows the Bible decently to help you walk through it. Commit to being in church. There's something happening today when it comes to us sharing our faith that I would be more clear than ever about us making sure we're showing people that what we're talking about is not coming from tradition or culture, but it's coming from the Bible. And that is a lot of people when they maybe are hurt or they hear the gospel or they're told about Christianity or you invite them to church, what they're thinking in their mind is, you're just asking me to be more Republican. You're just asking me to be more conservative. We have to be really, really careful. I know we live in a purple town, Democrats, Republicans, our church consists of different folks and different strokes and all those kind of things. That is not what we're offering when we offer the gospel of Jesus Christ. The God, this gospel is for every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's being preached today on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning in Poland. There's Bibles smuggled into prison cells in China where the scriptures are being read. And no one there understands the resurrection of Jesus is going, well, you know, I think, I don't know if I want to do this or not, because that means I have to watch Fox News. That's not what we're asking you. That's not what we're asking. That's why we must say it's, we're pointing people to nothing else but to the scriptures, to God's word. There's a pastor today that's gotten kind of trendy to say, let's not start with, with our, let's not our first approach be the Bible says. Let's not that be where we start because unbelievers don't believe the Bible. So if you say the Bible says, they're going to go, well, who cares? I don't believe the Bible. I sympathize with that. That makes perfect sense. But I would argue gently there, I don't think it's like a do or die thing, but gently there that we need to actually return to saying, here's what the Bible says to clear up any confusion. We're not saying Ben Shapiro says or Joe Rogan says. They're not even Christians. We're not saying Fox says. We're not saying TikTok says. This influencer says. We're saying the Bible says. How do we know God loves us? How do we know? 
There's only one way. Do you feel God's love? Sure. But how do you know that's what it is? The Bible tells us. How do we know there's a Jesus? Only one way. The Bible tells us. How do we know he died on the cross for our sins? The, ex, the absolute showing of God's love, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us? The Bible's what tells us. Without a Bible, we don't know any of these things. But here's the good news. God has given us the scriptures. Why would we point to something else? Yes, we can use nature to share about God and his grace. Yes, we can share experiences. We can do all of those things. But don't neglect the fact that we search the scriptures. We're not bringing you something that's been Americanized. We're bringing you something that was written generations and generations and generations before America was even beginning to become an idea. It was here long before our country. It will be here long after. And that's God's reign and God's rule that we understand through his word. Don't be ashamed that this is where we search. I think it's helpful for people who are understanding faith to know, okay, the scriptures, that's what they're talking about. They're not asking me to do anything else other than understand the Bible. Then we'll trust God in your heart to do the work for all the other things in your life that still do matter. So the deconstruction crowd's a thing, deconstructionism, where it's mainly an online phenomenon, but you're seeing people who are just like saying they're like deconstructing their faith, they're walking away from the faith, they're finding a new version of it, and they're just like, the reasons are usually, some have like church hurt, which I want to be sensitive towards, they're mistreated, uh, things such as that, I want to be sensitive towards that, but the majority of people I talk to, it's usually like, oh, my parents watch Fox News and I'm oppressed because of that. It's like, dude, you're fine. You know, like, like, like that, that kind of thing. It's very much just sort of anti-conservatism like, sort of thing is what it is. So they're trying to pretend like they don't want things to be political, but instead they're just going more and more progressive and are probably more political than ever. It just looks different. Here's why I bring that up. This is why we must be clear about what the scriptures say. Because if the Bible is what's driving our church and driving our faith and driving our worldview and our beliefs and our convictions, that means that what someone's deconstructing of is God and the gospel. And they must be held accountable for that. At the judgment seat, God's not going to say, so did your parents vote for Trump? Did they not? Where did you stand on this? Where did you stand on that? The answer is going to be, do you know Jesus or not? So let's make sure we're clear that the source of our faith and what we're asking people to do is to give their lives to Christ. That's the goal. Do I think it's going to affect the way you vote? Yeah. I hope it does. But you know what else? You're going to see that an American two-party system isn't always going to work for you. Because there's going to be a rub. And there should be a rub. Doesn't mean you don't vote a certain way and can't just vote one line, one way, one ticket. I get all that. It's a two-party system. It's complicated, right? We need to give each other a lot of grace. A lot of grace in a two-party system. A whole lot of grace as Christians. That did not happen in 2016. That did not happen at the last election. It has to happen as we go forward. It's complicated. We must address that. Some people aren't going to want to vote for somebody. Some are. Some are going to vote third party. Some aren't going to vote at all. There has to be grace for Christians in that. Why? Because we have to stay focused on the message. At the exact same time, we have to realize that when there is a rub and there is tension, it's a good thing. It's a good thing because it means God's wrecking idols in your heart. God's showing you through the scriptures where maybe you're inconsistent on certain things, how this does not line up with what we believe. And you might find yourself reconstructing your entire worldview 
because of what you seem, see here in the scriptures. And it might even lead you to go, oh, there's not even a category for that. Okay, I guess I have to think about this as a Christian rather than as an American, and you continue to work through it. The Bible says, is gonna clear up a lot of confusion. I know, it's sim- it's, I know I'm probably oversimplifying it, but I'm telling you, so many people get confused right now. They think that when you're asking them to become a Christian, you're mentioning something political. I would say, yes, we are. And that political declaration is that Jesus Christ is Lord because he has risen from the grave. And it impacts every single other thing in our lives, everything in our lives. But don't believe a gospel that would have to be altered if you move to a new country tomorrow. That's how you know it was just tradition or Americanism or if you move to a new country tomorrow, what would the gospel be? Jesus Christ crucified and risen. Are there implications here? If you lived in Poland or in Japan or wherever you might move, are there implications of the gospel that affects politics and the way you vote and how you care for the most vulnerable? Yes, 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 yes. But those are implications of the gospel. The story of the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And things as you read the scriptures that maybe you hold to politically that you'll find to be inconsistent with what you for yourself have searched and known and understood then the rest of those things will begin to play out. There will be things where someone has the right to say, how can you be a Christian and believe that? How can you be a Christian and hold to that view? Who are you to say that? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. But for the unbeliever who doesn't know Christ, your goal is not to get them to vote a certain way or to agree with you about a certain policy. Your goal is that they may see Jesus. So let he be the one who drives our message. And then it comes not from the latest podcast, but it comes from the scriptures and the word of God. The Bereans searched the scriptures and the conclusion they came to was the one that Paul is talking to us about is the one the Old Testament prophesied to. His name is Jesus. He died for our sins. He is alive. Let's trust in him. Let's trust in him. They're coming from Thessalonica. We don't want that to happen, bring it. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's alive, so no matter what happens here in this city, as they're coming from Thessalonica, we will still live for eternity with him. In other words, he is worth it because of who he is. Be encouraged by that today. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that Jesus Christ is the one, that he is the way, the truth, the life. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, that by him all things are made, that he is the long-awaited and promised Messiah, and as you promised us, he came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died a death that we deserve for our rebellion, even though no rebellion at all ever occurred in him. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. He's interceding for us right now. He's alive right this minute. And one day he will come back again to make all things new. And he will rule and reign for all eternity. And I thank you that those in Christ get to be a part of that. We get to be counted in that. We get to be called your children. Lord, I'm so thankful that we have Bibles. A word from you. Words that point us over and over again to who you are and what you've done. How you are better than anything this world has to offer. It makes us aware of what sin is and why you as a holy God must hold sin accountable. But for those who are in Christ, counted as your people, adopted into your family, 
Jesus stood in our place and we worship you for that. So as we sing songs, as we pray prayers, as we walk out of these doors today and go about our daily lives, let it all go under the understanding that we need to love the one who loved us first, the one who is alive, the one who is reigning, that you are patient with us, you are kind to us, you show compassion to us. But let us respond by saying, here's our lives. Lord, forgive our only talk to God when we need a favor kind of Christianity that so many of us, myself included, can get trapped in. Let our Christianity that we claim direct every area of our lives because we believe that Jesus Christ is alive, that you are near, you are personal, God. Thank you for this church. Lord, let us prioritize what you prioritize. You are building your church. And we take confidence in that. So as your people, who you have redeemed for yourself and called your own, let us be unashamed of the gospel. Let us agree with the Bereans after we've searched the scriptures that you are the one you claim to be. Let deconstruction stop. Lord, reconstruct our hearts to be more like Jesus. It's in his great name we pray. Amen.